and also the preaching. Before we jump into our sermon today, I'd like to dismiss the King's Kids. Um, you could go ahead out and go ahead up to the King's Kids room. And for those of you that would like to follow along in Spanish, you can get that information off of our website on the homepage, or you could scan the barcode in the back, or you could just follow everybody that's going down into the, into the fellowship room, and they will help you out. We have the simultaneous uh, translation. <clears throat> so today we are going to continue in our journey of the Gospel of John, and it has been a journey. We are now coming to the end, to the last chapter, although today we're going to finish up in chapter 20. And so <clears throat> I'm going to read from John chapter 20, verses 24 to 31, and that's going to be our text for today. So it's John chapter 20, verses 24 <clears throat> to 31, and this is a, about a week after Jesus had at first appeared on the day that he rose from the dead to his disciples. And so verse 24 but Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails <clears throat> and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into the side, into his side, I will not believe. 26. <clears throat> After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, I'm sure having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. <clears throat> Third time he said that in this chapter. Verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, <clears throat> Reach your finger, reach here with your finger, see my hands. See here your hand and put it in, reach your hand here and put it into my side. I'm having a problem reading today, I'm sorry. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, <clears throat> have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see, yet believed. And then in verse 30, <clears throat> therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these, every single thing that you've read so far in the Gospel of John, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. <clears throat> So a lot of people think that's pretty much John's intention when he ended the book. And then maybe that this chapter 21 was added later. Who knows? We don't know. We'll get to chapter 21 next time. But now we're going to really focus in on this finality, I guess you could say, of John's summary, really. This is why the book was written. So you will believe. <clears throat> and a good story uh, a, a good writer always knows how to bring a story to an end. Some of us, we write ourselves into a corner and we you ever see a really weird ending to a movie. It's probably because the writer didn't know where to go. And so <clears throat> sometimes they call that writing into a, uh, into a corner. But this is a really good story, a good narrative that John, and I say that in a way not to demean the text and say it's just a story. It's real. 
But again, John writing as a, an excellent writer, he begins the story and then goes full circle. And you know this when you see a movie or any story, it begins with a main character existing in their everyday life. And a lot of times it's say you start the story with whatever the character was doing yesterday. Okay. And then soon into the narrative, we see something happens to the character. They throw him into a new situation. He's challenged. He's off to accomplish his goal. And then in most cases, in some way, shape, or form, after the character achieves his goal, the character returns to where he began, but he's changed. Something happened along the way. The pursuit towards his goal, the journey that he took, makes him and changes him into a new person. He's learned many lessons, and then he returns back from his journey, a renewed man and with really a renewed perspective. Now, compared to where we're at right now, at the end of the Gospel of John, if we look back to the very beginning of our story, we see a lot of these same things. We see Jesus being thrown out in conflict and trial in victory. And most important, we see a major change in Jesus Christ. Now, he doesn't change in the sense of overcoming shortcomings because he has none. But he does change very deliberately into what he intended to become when he came a man. And that is a resurrected man, the firstborn of the new creation. He was the one that created everything. And now he is the one that is recreating everything. And remember, John began his story with what? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And it says, He was in the beginning with God and all things came into being through Him. So John's showing us in the beginning, He was the initiator of all things. He created every single thing that was ever created. Every person, every every idea, everything. Now John shows us in chapter 20 that Jesus not only made the world from the beginning, but now through his change into the resurrected Christ, he's remaking it again through himself. Now John is also echoing back by showing us the risen Jesus Christ here. He's echoing back to chapter 1 as well. Remember in verse 12 in chapter 1, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name. And then in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the father, full of grace and full of truth. Now this is in chapter one. And now the story comes full circle where we're actually seeing what John was talking about firsthand here now the resurrected Christ in all of his glory. And in chapter 20, this new, well, I like to call it the newly created human race because that's what he's doing. Jesus is remaking human beings. He's remaking their hearts as that prototype for that new creation in the resurrection. It starts with a resurrected, born again, converted heart. Not born of blood, not born of the will of the flesh, but of God. And this is how the promise of the story from the beginning fleshes itself out in the end. 
So John has much to say about Jesus. It's the very first chapter all the way through 20. But his goal and the goal he portrays Jesus as having first and foremost, this is the most important, I believe, sermon, I think, in all of the gospel of John. Because what the number one goal is about, for the gospel of John is that the reader will believe what he is reading as actually 100% true. And this is, he talks a lot about it, but now we're, ex, we're exiting the book. So that's why I think this is so important. Not that this may be your last chance to believe, but we are going to talk about belief today. And we're also going to talk about unbelief <clears throat> because that's what this passage is all about. This passage is a microcosm of really what the book is all about. He's told us throughout, John, he hasn't hit it. Believe in Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the resurrection and the life. <clears throat> if you don't believe in Jesus, you won't have eternal life. There is no other way to the Father except through him. He is the great capital I, capital A-M. But <clears throat> we have this word believe. Again, we talked about John. He saturates his book with, set, with, with ideas, words, and themes, and he brings them back over and over and over and over with the intention that we will <clears throat> believe. The word believe occurs nine times in the book of Matthew, ten times in the book of Mark, nine in the book of Luke, and 55 times in the book of John. So John's theme of believing comes to this bottleneck today, to this ultimate climax, and he uses an example to demonstrate what it is to believe and what it is to not believe, and he uses this, this guy called Thomas that we are going to talk about. <clears throat> You know, doubting Thomas. Everybody <clears throat> thinks of this passage and they think about the doubter. Thomas, oh, I want to see, unless I see, unless I touch, unless I do this. But you see, <clears throat> this passage is not about just Thomas's belief or unbelief. It's really about something and someone much bigger. And that is Jesus himself. It shows just how much Jesus himself is concerned about one of his disciples and that disciple's unbelief. He believe, he, he's concerned about his belief, obviously, but he's more concerned about unbelief. <clears throat> unbelief is the only sin that if you do not repent from it, there is no turning back at all. There's a, the sin of unbelief is rejecting God. It's rejecting Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. And every single one of us is born in this very same category. Last week, we spoke of Jesus accomplishing the victory of establishing his kingdom and us implementing that victory. But today is about how he accomplishes the specific and really the most important victory. And that is the salvation of your life from the penalty of sin and the penalty of death. How? Through belief in Jesus, through his grace. You're not going to get anything today that you have to do. You have to live up to. <clears throat> However, you will want to respond to this Christ. 
You will want to come to him and embrace him. You will want to live after him and follow him and make him your Lord and Savior if, in fact, he changes your heart from unbelief to belief. So in this passage, how does Jesus do that? How does he accomplish this victory of our unbelief? He over, how does he overcome that in himself? <clears throat> well, first, it's really important, I think, to see that number one, and this is something that we have to talk about <laughs> because we got to make sure that you get this. Jesus seeks us in our unbelief. He seeks you out in your unbelief. Okay, you, if, if he leaves you on your own, you're going to go further away from him in unbelief. You're not going to get smart one day and go, yeah, you know what, this seems really good and uh, I, I, I better start believing and I'm going to do it myself. It doesn't work that way. The Bible says we're dead in our sins and trespasses. Bible doesn't say we're sick in our sins and trespasses or that we're weak in our sins and trespasses. It says we're dead. Uh, the implication throughout all of Scripture is that none can know God, none can seek God without God. So God grabs that dead sinner's heart and he transforms it and he turns it and he makes that transformed heart from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And that heart of flesh wants to follow Christ. But it's he is the initiator. And I love talking about this in marriage because... <clears throat> When we talk about husband and wife, this is a really good, a good example, I think, if I should, don't say so myself. The husband is, 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 in the Bible, is equivalent to Christ when we talk about marriage. And the wife is the bride. So Paul says this in Ephesians 5, that the husband and the wife, marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. <clears throat> and I love picking on men because men in that situation are now modeling after Christ with their wife. They have to be the initiators. They have to go and seek out and pursue that love. <clears throat> That's the dynamic that God has created. And we see that perfectly in how Christ seeks out sinners. So to believe, what does it mean to be? What does it mean to say, I believe? <clears throat> well, first of all, it means that you are confident in you are trusting in something that you've been completely persuaded of. So you're trusting in something, you're placing your confidence in something, and you know this to be a fact because you are persuaded of it. I am leaning on this pulpit, I am trusting in it. I've been persuaded that it can hold me up, and I'm very confident that it can remain holding me up throughout the rest of this sermon. That's just a simple example, an analogy of trust. That's what Jesus wants us to do with him. He wants us to be completely, 100% persuaded of who he is, what he's done for us. He wants us to place our confidence in him, in who he, who he is and what he can do for us, save us to the uttermost, never leave us nor forsake us. And he wants us to trust him even though we can't see or understand exactly what he's up to, he wants us to trust. So that's just my overview of what belief is. <clears throat> but in the scripture, it's, in John especially, it's a verb. It's an action. So it's the act of doing these things. 
I say, yeah, I believe in this pulpit. I, I believe in leaning on it. Well, go ahead, Pat, lean on it. Well, no, I'm not quite ready to do that yet. The word believe in John means to cleave. <clears throat> it means to embrace. It means to cleave on to something. That action of believing is, the, is, a, is a repetitive action of cleaving onto Christ. But our problem is that we don't want to do that. But, but the really cool thing is that Jesus knows our doubts. Jesus knows our unbelief. He knows why we don't believe. He knows our sinful heart. He knows our past. He knows our, all the little idiosyncrasies about our different personalities. He knows it all. And I love that he uses Thomas as the example. <clears throat> because this is something that we see. Unless, that word, unless I see... Thomas was a skeptic. I mean, this is a guy who hung around with Jesus. But even when he hung around with Jesus, he doesn't talk much. He doesn't talk in the other Gospels. He only talks in John. He only talks a few different times. Remember the, in John eleven sixteen, 16, after Jesus heard that Lazarus was dead and said, yeah, it's good that we don't go right away. And he waits. And then he says, let's go to Jerusalem. <clears throat> Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, yeah, let us go too, so that we, we may die with him, said in a sarcastic way. He was always a little negative. He was always a little pessimistic. <clears throat> and then Jesus, after he told everybody, hey, I am the way, the truth, and the life. <clears throat> uh, no one comes to the Father except to me. Thomas said to him, Lord, you know, right before that, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? He says, I am the way. Thomas was always skeptical. He was always sort of suspicious about what's going on. He didn't deny, I don't think, the things Jesus did. He saw them. But we're talking about something absolutely absurd to those people then. Resurrection? Come on. Ris risen from the dead? A dead, dead bodies don't come back to life? Uh, unless I see that for myself, unless I put my finger in the holes of his hands, and I touch his side, I'm not believing, unless, right? And this is what we do to God. We take our seat at the judge's table. We go up to, into court, and we go up behind the judge's desk, and he's sitting up there, and he goes, prove to me now your case. And we do that to God, <clears throat> We, we jump up and we say, into, we go up into the court and say, prove yourself to me, God. Unless you do this, I'm not going to believe. And unless you do that, I'm not going to believe. <clears throat> and because you did this, I can't believe in a God that does that. Because I'm the judge of what God should be. I've made God in my image. Please me. You see, that's not how it goes, does it? God doesn't need to be vindicated by us. God is the judge, and we listen to what he says. We don't ever say to God unless, uh, don't say that. But in God's grace, even though we all do say that, we all sit here and say at some point in time, well, and this is the biggest thing that I hear on, on the street, is that people say, well, if I, if I could see, I will believe. And I say, no, you won't. 
And I've shared this with you before because you are not going to know at that point when God comes down, you're still not going to know if what you're seeing is really God. You're still going to be a skeptic because it just could be some sort of magic trick, could be some hologram, could be some technology is what you'll say. Yeah, you want me to levitate the pulpit? People say that. Well, make that building levitate. And then what are you going to say is going to happen? See, believing through experience is something that solidifies the truth of what happened to you. Believing through experience, seeing something. You can't convince me. I say this with fear and trepidation, put it that way. But you can't convince me that Jesus is not alive. You can't convince me that he's not Lord. You can't convince me that he hasn't changed my life. But there was a time when you could. But God made me alive, and now you could, I couldn't not believe. There's nothing you could do to change my mind. Because I experienced it. But I only experienced it because God opened my heart and sought after me. You follow me? So it's, the, so it's not our place to say, unless God I show, because that doesn't make any sense. Unless what? Make me a millionaire? Unless what? Heal my diseases? Unless what? Still will not take an unbeliever and make him a believer. God has to open the heart. And so we see that he's, he's seeking after us, but he's just not coming over to us and sort of, you know, wooing us. He's really aggressively pursuing us. <clears throat> Look at this visit. This is eight days after. So this is another reference to that eight day of the week. He comes in, it's the, you know, Jesus has already risen, it's a week later, but he comes back specifically, walks in, the doors were still shut, <clears throat> and he appears to Thomas. He didn't have to do that. <clears throat> he could have just showed up on Pentecost when Thomas was there, got anointed with the Holy Spirit. He could have did a lot of other things, but Jesus personally came to Thomas. And again, I said, remember, let's not give Thomas the bad rap because this isn't about Thomas. This is about the love that Jesus has, that he would already humble himself as a man and now come into some knucklehead like me because I say, unless I believe, no, he loves you. He loves me and he comes and he walks through doors that are shut and walls that are solid and he comes in. But again, Thomas, again, he, this is where I believe it really applies to you and me. Luke 24, 38. This is what Jesus says in the parallel passage in Luke. Jesus walked in and said, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? You see what's going on here? This isn't just about Thomas. This was about all the disciples that were there. Not only were all the disciples including, uh, included in that mission of implementation of the kingdom, but all the disciples are also included in this unbelief. He's coming back to encourage not only Thomas, but he's coming back to graciously pursue all of them. And this Thomas is a picture of each one of us, every one of our stories. This is a picture of it. And I look at it like this, belief, unbelief, true belief. <clears throat> because most of us believe in the person called Jesus. Most of us intellectually believe that there was, in history, a guy named Jesus who thought he was the Messiah, 
If you don't believe that, you're, 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 with all due respect, you're way behind on history and archaeology and all that because we have outside secular sources that even say that, yeah, this guy was a real person. And the Bible also says, even for those people that have never heard of the name Jesus, that the heavens declare the glory, the glory of God. And that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Which means that our condition is so bad that the Bible calls it dead. But the Bible also puts the onus on us and says we take the truth and we press it down. We suppress it like the volleyball under the pool when you're trying to hide the, the, bull, the, the ball from one of the kids. And you stick it between your knees and they don't know where it's at. That's the word suppressing it down. You're holding it down. So we all have a period of belief, but we, we suppress it or we just intellectually assent to this guy, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, he was there, but that means nothing. That and 25 cents will get you a cup of coffee somewhere, I'm sure. What it really means is when we go to that point of unbelief, when we hear the gospel and we reject it. Because we know that if we believe that Jesus is the only way to God and that he's risen from the dead and he's Lord and King, you and I can't just sneak out of the room and go about our business, can we? This is a big deal. This means he must be our Lord. I have to now change my life and follow this God. Nope. We all go through that. But then something happens. Jesus walks through the door that was shut or the wall that was solid and he touches your heart. He moves in on you and he changes your heart. And now you go, I can't understand why. I don't understand how. Your friends start to say to you, what happened to you? I need to talk with you because I can never imagine you to be this way. If you maybe came from a different and you changed radically other people may come to you and just say, wow, you're really a smart intellectual guy. I never thought you'd fall for this religious stuff. And you have nothing wrong with you, do you? I mean, are you a drug addict? I mean, for a drug addict, you want Jesus. That's cool. That's your thing. That's good. But I didn't know non-drug addicts come after Jesus too. Yes. Smart people, all types of people. We have an intellectual faith. We don't have a blind faith that's just like, okay, now I'm so bad. Now I must, I guess I'll try Jesus. No, but I do have to tell you, it is a neat shortcut. It really is. Because when God, when God knocks you down, you know it's his hand because not only does he knock you down, but he's lifting you up. He makes himself real to you. You get to glimpse the absurdity of life without him. And hopefully you turn and you go to him. And that's what true belief is. True belief in Jesus Christ is cleaving on to him and depending fully upon him and knowing that you know that you know that he is God. I'm not saying that you know everything about him. I'm not saying you understand all the Bible. I'm not saying you, could, you should now get in the ministry and do all this other stuff. But I'm just saying you have now met Jesus Christ. That's, that's, what, that's all I can tell you is you know. And I could back it up with scripture too if you want to talk about that. But this is how God works. He comes to save us. And you see, this is the thing. We have to, the application for this is to really accept 
Not only your hopelessness and helplessness without Jesus, not only your need for him for forgiveness, but you have to accept who Jesus is. He is the savior of sinners. He's not the savior of good people. He's not the savior of people that are really righteous and holy and that do all the things like perfect. They go to church and they're just these pillars of society, although maybe some Christians are that. But he came to save sinners. And so why don't we accept and believe on him when we know that we need him? And I always think it's because the, the, the main thing that I hear is that people are either embarrassed because of their sin, ashamed because of their sin, or prideful because of their sin. And they say, I, couldn't, I could never come to God knowing I, uh, as bad as I am, I have to wait until everything's better and then I, then I will come to him. That's not, that makes no sense. That's like saying, yes, I need emergency surgery, but you know what? I don't want to put the surgeon out of the way. <laughs> you know, it's, I don't want to make more work for him until I'm healed up a little bit. You know, that, that, that's ridiculous. That, the surgeon's job is to do surgery. It's what he loves to do. That's what he wakes up every morning and he does. It's his livelihood. Jesus is the savior of sinners. So he wants you as a sinner to come to him. And rely on him because you can't get rid of your own sin because you can't stop that sin. So he wants you to come to him. He is the savior of sinners. So that's what we have to do. He seeks us and we must respond. Jesus also, number two here I have, is he finds us in our unbelief. In that phase of our unbelief is where he finds us. But he also finds us in our doubts as well as believers. Because I think this is a really, a lot of times we come to church and we say, well, it's either black or white. It's like I'm either, you know, over here and I'm, I'm, I'm not living the life I should live and I need to get back to that. Or, you know, I, I am living the life that I'm supposed to live on the outside, but then there's these bumps in the road that make us question our salvation, that make us doubt whether or not what God is doing. Or, and then we, all, then we stop going to him as that surgeon, and now he just becomes our maintenance doctor. You know, we, we find that doctor or that teacher or that person that could always tell us what we want to hear. But that's not what Jesus wants. He wants us to know that almost every single one of his disciples was in the same shoes as you were in and I was in. Jesus found Peter in his unbelief, his complete unbelief, and also he came and came back to him after Peter denied him three times in his bumpy road as a Christian. That's what happens sometimes. You're going to fail. I'm not giving you a license to sin because God is holy and he hates sin. But Jesus is the savior. He is the opposite of that. He accommodates for that by spilling his blood as God and as someone who loves you. He finds Peter, tells Peter to throw the net on the other side. Remember that in Luke, early in Luke. And after, after he lets down the nets and they're full, Peter just says, Lord, get away from me. I am a sinful man. Completely the way that we are sometimes. When Jesus is going, that's why I'm here with you right now, because you are a sinful man. 
That's why I gave you the fish. Not so you can make some money, but to get your attention. Now you're getting somewhere. You're a sinful man. But I am the savior of sinners. I'm a great savior, Jesus says. Come to me and I will cleanse you from this burden, this guilt of your sin. And I will get you on the right road. And I, that right road is following me. Jesus found Philip and Nathaniel in their unbelief. It says in first John, when we, in the beginning of uh, this very book, John chapter 1. He found Philip. He purposed to go to Galilee and he found Philip. Verse 43, he said to him, follow me. Philip found Nathanael. He says, we, have, we found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. And what did Nathanael say? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? See, Jesus finds us in our unbelief. I remember this was the hardest thing for me as um. Because I used to do boxer rescue. <laughs> I, used to, I used to, this is before I had children, right? It's funny because when you first get, when people first get together, they always get the dog first or the cat, you know? That was me and my wife, except I had like three or four dogs at all times because I loved boxers. And I would go out and I literally volunteered where if the boxer was lost, they would call up boxer rescue and we would go try to find them, right? So, uh, the funniest thing is, is that do you, do you, lost dogs are not happy to be found. Did you ever notice that? They're not happy to be found, unless it's their owner. But even then, if it's a younger dog, they've freaked out. They could, they could run and they could be gone. And so I never was able to capture these dogs. It's, it, until I took one and I fostered it. And this dog was super cool. We got along great. He did everything I said. So when I would get a call, I would take this dog with me. And that dog that was lost, we'd find him and he'd be running. And all I would do is pull my little dog out, this other boxer, and that dog would stop and he would run and he would run over and they would talk and I would grab him and throw him in the car. Yeah, it was a little sneaky. But lost dogs don't like to come. You see, so Jesus... He uses situations. He uses people. It's not always going to be Jesus. Like we read about Jesus' ministry here on earth, and we try to superimpose that into now his ministry at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Two different ministries. Although they encompass doing the same thing, Jesus isn't different when he was on earth. But he's not accessible and doesn't do these things that he did on earth like personally call us or talk to us or walk through the door necessarily and, and go, wow, you do, you, I do believe. But he sends others. Maybe it's this message. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a, someone you met on the street. Maybe it's a TV commercial you saw or an ad or something where God is speaking to you. He's seeking you out. He's chasing you. And he wants you to come. It was... <clears throat> It was great hearing Phil Reardon's testimony. If you missed it, watch it on, on um, YouTube. But he, he really, well, to me, was the most incredible thing about it is when he first got, Phil Reardon was a guy who was in jail for 30 years. Um, and he first went to jail. He was not saved. He was, he was an alcoholic and a, uh, just a heathen, according to him. And he got uh, <clears throat> in some sort of um, situation where he went into solitary confinement. And he was in solitary confinement, and there was a guy next to him that got thrown into the hole, 
for literally five minutes because he was put in there by mistake because of some uh, medical condition they thought he had. And within that five minutes, that guy went through the vent and said, hey, do you know Jesus Christ? And Phil had already a series of times where Christ had was reaching out to him. And as soon as he says that, the officers pull him out of, the, of solitary confinement. They walk in the front of the cell, and they, apparently they have a little slide for food, like we've seen in the movies when they're in solitary. They throw it through. So this guy gets his Bible and throws it in. Read this! And so that five minutes... Is, is how God sent someone to reach that man. And it's cool because a couple months later, Phil told his story in the jail church and the guy goes, oh yeah, that was me. You know, and it was the guy that told Phil actually what had happened. God will go to great extremes. Don't, I'm telling you, he will go to great extremes for his children. He's not ever going to let you go. And so you have to realize that if you continue to hear and you continue that Jesus is continuing to talk to you. He's continuing to send people to you. You're reading the word everywhere you go. That's, that's his seeking you out. You need to stop and listen and pray to him and invite him in. Because the third thing Jesus does, like he did with Thomas, is he changes our unbelief into belief. The greatest, one of the greatest professions of faith in all the New Testament, my Lord and my God. This is a direct, this is a statement of awe to Jesus, calling Jesus his Lord and his God. <clears throat> so this is, to me, like when you look at this, you say, yeah, all right, my Lord and my God. But to, to go and think about who these people were, who Thomas was. Thomas was a, was a Jewish guy, okay? He was a monotheistic, creational Jew. What that means is monotheistic, one God who created the, the world, who's caring for the world, and is going to restore the world. That's what the Jewish mentality was. So for him to say, my Lord and my God, would have been a blasphemous statement if he did not believe that Jesus was God. He wasn't thinking of two different gods. So this is a very, very powerful, powerful conversion that if he was in fact converted before this, I don't know. We know they all received the Holy Spirit last week when we talked about Jesus breathing in on, breathing on them. So we don't know what happened here. But for him to make this profession is a concrete profession of faith, of belief. He, John talks about going from sight to blindness. Jesus says that those that would see would become blind Okay? But those that are blind see. So now we see Thomas, his sight gets opened when? When he encounters Christ. And that's exactly what we must do. We must encounter Christ. And these specific things were written so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we would have life in his name. These things weren't written so that you could wait for Jesus to walk through the room and do the same thing to you. He's saying these things were written so that you could read them or hear them, and by reading and hearing, believe. And as a result of your belief, you have life. Notice, it's life. It starts now. You already have life. You're living, you're breathing, but now you're going to get true life. And there's a continuity of that life now into the next life. There's a discontinuity. There's going to be a little bump on the road there called death. 
But that bump in the road is going to be temporary because you're going to be with Christ and then you're going to be risen from the dead. That life to life. Blessed are they who do not need to see. Look at that. Blessed are those who, blessed are they who do not see, yet believed. See, so what do we do? Well, are you blessed because you believe? Or are you someone that is skeptic, like Thomas? Are you someone that's believed, you think, maybe stronger in the past than you do now? And you don't know why. You don't know what's going on. Why, why do I feel so cold? Why do I feel like you're so far away, Lord? It's unbelief. It's unbelief. It's not trusting in Christ. So here's how you do it. I'm going to give you the, 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 the application here. And this is simple. It's not a big thing. But it's this book right here. The Bible. That's what John wants you to read because that's why he wrote this book. That's why he wrote the book. God gave us the Bible. But specifically, the ministry of John and the gospel of John is to get you to believe, but you're not reading. You got to read the Bible to believe the Bible. You got to really chew on it and you got to squeeze it and you got to. You got to really go close and you, and you got to get involved in it. And you got to say, Lord, you know, tell me what this means. And then when you get told, you got to rejoice in it. And you got to keep scripture in your mind and live by it. That's what you must do to strengthen your belief. Don't wait for a sign. Here it is right here. The Bible. The sign is right here. Here it is. Therefore, many other signs... Jesus also performed in the presence of a disciple, which are not written in this book. Don't worry about those. Worry about these. These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing, you may have life in his name. So he's, Jesus, and again, this is sort of cool because remember a few weeks ago, Mary was the one seeking for Jesus, weeping for Jesus, and clinging to Jesus. And now Jesus is the one doing that, seeking for us, coming through this, these, these shut doors, going up right, going through the crowd right to you. Come here. Put your hands here. Put your hands here. Believe. Be believing, not unbelieving. So he seeks us in our unbelief. He knows our doubts. He knows our unbelief, but he aggressively and graciously pursues us. Remember, believe occurs 55 times in, the, in this book alone in the Bible. So Jesus is offering this to not just Thomas. Remember that. It is you as well. He'll find you in your unbelief and he'll offer this salvation to you to believe, to walk by faith. And then he will change you in your unbelief. I thought this would be a couple, uh, neat to close with a couple of these scriptures. <clears throat> How do we overcome unbelief? Look at the Capernaum centurion. Remember what he said in Matthew, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus said what? Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed, as you have believed. What did he have? 
He gave the authority to Christ. He had humility before the Lord. What about Abraham? In Genesis 15, God said, look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said, so shall your descendants be. And then Abraham believed in the Lord and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. He accepted God's word as fact and as certainty. This is another way to overcome unbelief. One of my favorites to overcome unbelief, Israel, Exodus 14, we read it today. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used, the people feared and they believed. So what I like to do is look back to how the Lord moved in my life in the past. Because I could tell you two or three times in my life that the Lord moved and I just knew that I knew that I knew that it was the Lord. And that just inspires me to look back and think about the great power of which the Lord had used at that time and will do it yet again. And you have to see your helpless affliction with sin. This is so difficult for prideful humans like us. Psalm 116.10, I believed when I said I am greatly afflicted. I believed when I said I am greatly afflicted. So walk by faith, not by sight. Walk in belief. Jesus commands you to believe. I'm going to close with these, these, these following words. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already. John 6, 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And then the harsh warning from John 8, Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees here, but this applies to all of us. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. The emphasis is in your sins because when you die, your sin will have to be paid for And you are either going to pay for that, which is a debt you cannot ever pay. So you will wait in a perpetual separation from God forever under his great judgment and justice. The Bible calls it hell. I don't think that that quite describes the torment and the terrible, uh, how bad it's going to be, for lack of a better way to say it. But... That's what he's saying. You'll die in your sins. But if you die not in your sins, then you are going to have life. You're going to pass through, but you're going to have life. So my, encourage, my last encouraging word to you, please, I, I beseech you on behalf of Christ, believe in him, fully give your life to him. How do you do it? By praying to him, by talking to him, by knowing him. Is there a secret potion, prayer, dance, chant? No, just pray to him and call out his name and he will save you. Father, we do all cry out to you now. If there's any hearts here, Lord, that haven't yet, if there's any unbelieving hearts here, Lord, which I know there are, the doubts of my own hearts raised, Lord. So even as I pray, as you say, the, uh, you, know, you know everything about me, Lord. There's nothing I can hide from you. But I believe in you, Lord. And I pray that everybody here would believe and trust and be carried through to the end. We pray this in Jesus' Jesus name. Amen.
So we're going to sing our last song. Uh, if you'd like, you could stand and uh, join us for our last song. As the dew. As the dew.